Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 121 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I am Pachamus conversationalist, sworn co-host of this grand podcast, and with me, hopefully pointing his thumb up, is my best friend and co-host, Erroneous Strength and Honor. I was hoping I would pronounce that correctly. I feel like I want to call it Erinonious. Maybe that would work too, right? Either one will suffice. <laughs> one's the Latin and one's the ancient Latin, so we'll go with that. <laughs> this week marks the first of our final four Director Battle Month winners, and I, for one, am not complaining about the victor here. We are talking about Ridley Scott's 2000 Roman epic, Gladiator. Before we enter this arena of discussion, though, Aaron, why don't you catch us up on what you've been up to this week? Yes, I would love to, actually, because I watched another film about a Gladiator this week, a new movie that's out in theaters about a wonderful competitor named Winnie the Pooh. No, really, uh, I I saw a movie called Christopher Robin that has just released its Disney's latest live action adaptation, and it's in the vein of Paddington 2, not just in that it kind of stars a bear, but that it is a live action slash CGI hybrid film. And Patrick, I had zero interest going into this movie, okay? I didn't want to see it. I, in fact, had it completely off my radar until one day when my son was like, hey, dad, are you going to take us to see this certain movie? And I was like, well, no, I'm not. And he wanted me to, and I gave in. And so I decided I would take him, and my daughter wanted to go as well. The day of our press screening, she actually backed out, and so I ended up taking my son and our foreign exchange student that has been staying with them. So that was kind of fun. We went, we saw the movie, and I got to tell you right off the bat, I love going into movies with low expectations. It's part of the the nature of the beast. And we talk about it all the time. You know, when we, we like to get hyped about movies, we like to be excited and look forward to them, but there's something special about going in expecting to have a bad time and then coming out and realizing you had a great time. And that's what happened to me with Christopher Robin. Now I have zero history at all with Winnie the Pooh. I know who Winnie the Pooh is. I knew that Tigger exists and Piglet and Eeyore. I recognize those animals from pop culture, but I didn't know anything about the story. I didn't know that Christopher Robin was essentially in this fantasy land and he didn't even know he was British, frankly. Uh, and, And what we got here was a really intriguing look at an older Christopher Robin. So the story revolves around Christopher Robin. He's grown up and he's become this kind of workaholic, bad dad and bad husband. He's not, joyful anymore he's lost that love and feeling i guess when it comes to enjoying creativity the way that he did as a child and so ewan mcgregor plays him really well and i think that the parts without the animals are sufficient uh he does a good job but when the animals come into play patrick i i thought that it was going to be i I made jokes i called it creepy poo the movie i thought it was going to be like a serial killer flick because the 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 winnie the pooh character in the trailers looks just scary as can be but 
he's so adorable and he's so sweet. And when he starts putting out these little Winnie the Pooh nuggets of wisdom, you just can't help but go, oh, you're right. And what I found is over time, my hardened shell softening. And I just fell in love with all of these little CGI characters, specifically Eeyore. All three of us came out of the movie just big, big, big Eeyore fans. I've already now gotten the brand new Christopher Robin uh, version of Eeyore. It's the stuffed animal version. So they have a, a pop figure that is more slick looking. And this one is kind of got like a look of the fur from the CGI. And uh, I had pre-ordered it on Amazon. Wasn't going to ship until I think tomorrow or Tuesday when it technically released. But I went to the Funko store this weekend and I saw it there because it was early. And so I was able to get it. And uh, just because I feel like it's appropriate and Eeyore is always sad. I really relate to Eeyore, by the way. I put him on a shelf all by himself. My daughter thinks that that's very mean and rude. But I felt like that's the way Eeyore would want it to be. So Eeyore hey, is <laughs> he's there now. And I love looking at him. And I, I really do love that character a lot. Um, he was both entertaining, but also so sweet. All of these characters, they just brought me so many smiles. Uh, as much as probably the third most I've had all year watching a movie. I, I remember Paddington 2 would probably be number one. Ready Player One is right there as well, just from a spectacle and what I expected and what I got since. But this movie was so unexpectedly just wonderful. And what I love the most about it, Patrick, is that it's a family film that we don't get a lot of these days. Now, we have gotten quite a few this year, and I'm very happy about that with Paddington 2, even The Incredibles 2. This is the movie, though, that is more traditionally Disney when it comes to values and stuff. You know, take your kids to see this. They're going to enjoy it. They're going to learn some things or hear some some good, positive lines of thinking. And it's just a nice, safe, soft-told tale for the whole family. And I really hope that people go see this movie. Well, I'm glad that your expectations were raised because of watching this. And it's always nice to hear when you go into a movie and I can't say with no expectations because we all have them, whether we want to admit it or not. And to see those kind of turned on their head because of really positive things. So very cool. Yeah. I hope you take your son. I really do. Because I think that he would enjoy the heck out of it. At some point it may or may not happen. It just depends on, he's still fighting, not wanting to go to kindergarten, which is kind of a headache right now, but you know, we'll get there (laughs) eventually. Well, let's also talk about our picks because we had, secretly made our own version of the bracket picks uh, before the voting took place. This is the first round in the director battle, as you mentioned. And so we did that first quadrant. And because we're both competitive, we need to know who came out on top. In fact, before we start revealing these picks, we didn't agree to this beforehand. But since this is what we've done for all of our sports competitions, I think we should put a pop figure Oh, dude. Are you kidding me? Dude, I'm trying to win something. Okay, I lose all the time. I don't want our friendship to to be, like, thwarted because of my dominance. dominance. Yeah, I mean. Then lose. Hey, listeners, just to let you know, uh, during the, I think it was the bull pick'em, maybe? No, no. They don't care. They like movies, not sports. We don't need to tell them. You're throwing the pop figure competition in here, so I'm going to, this is relevant. Uh, During March Madness, uh, there was some crazy stuff that happened. If you're any kind of fans of the bracket, not necessarily the sport, um, you'll know that crazy things happen. And they did. And at one point, I was pretty much feeling like I was out. 
And so I went ahead and mailed my best friend a pop figure from his collection. And then that weekend happened right before the, guess the final four. And I ended up winning. So <laughs> I said, you can just mail me two if you want. So, so far he mailed me one. And so maybe he'll make good. And despite winning or losing, he'll mail me a second one after this. So I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, okay. You can throw in a pop figure for this one. Well, to make this one easy, it's just going to be a point for pick. We're not going to do different points for different round values and all that craziness. Let's just okay. let's keep it simple. So, all right, top corner bracket. We had a lot of fun with this voting the first round. I was so happy to see the engagement in our Facebook group and the people yeah. getting into this. It was really cool because the first line of matchups what stuck out is there were so many blowouts. <laughs> and which is okay. I mean, that means that I felt like I kind of seated them and placed them in the right place, but then they really got tighter and tighter and tighter. And once you got a couple of those matchups that were neck and neck, people started campaigning. And that's when it became a lot of fun is to see people trying to convince everybody else like, no, 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 pick this one. And I want to hear them talk about this movie. And so that was, that was good. All right. Hey, so one more thing before we, before we go further. I just want to say that the thing I love about this among what you just said is the fact that when all this is over, we will have 60 movies that we can do this again with when, when we finish this. So we've got guys, if, if you want feeling film to stick around for a while, you've got years and years worth of movies that we're eventually going to cover at the very least from director battle month. So yay for that. Absolutely. Agree a hundred percent. Well, the first round, how'd you do? How'd you come out of the first round battles? Okay, so I had. Uh, you want me to just tell you what my picks were? Sure. That, yeah. So I had um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and then Isle of Dogs. Okay. And then I had the Hurt Locker going up against Zero Dark Thirty. Mm-hmm. I had the Martian against Gladiator. Mm-hmm. Sunshine versus Twenty Eight Days Later. Forrest Gump versus Castaway. Big Fish versus Batman. No, 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 stop, Bueller. stop, stop, okay. stop. You're in another bracket now. I am? Yep. Oh, yeah, I am. I thought we were ducky. Sorry. Nope. I've given away some of my picks for next week. So, so, so how did you do? What did you get? Uh, what did you miss? What did I miss? Oh. You missed Isle of Dogs because it was yeah. actually Moonrise Kingdom. Yes. Um, let me see here. I missed... Let me see. Didn't miss Gladiator, that's you for missed, sure. And you missed Sunshine. Which was all, which was slumped on a millionaire. So you you missed two. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Well, I missed one. My miss in the first round was uh, Point Break over the Hurt Locker, and I was incorrect there. Okay. All right. So in the second round, how'd you do in the second round? I had Isle of Dogs and Hurt Locker going up against each other, and either of which made it. Yes. <laughs> okay. And then I had Gladiator going up against Sunshine, and Gladiator won out there. So you're moving too fast here. Slow down. So that was okay. that was your round. Your round was <laughs> you were three. You were you were one of four. So you missed one three, right, in the second round. Yeah, I was three of four. I only missed the twenty eight days later pick. I had okay. picked that. I was surprised actually that Slumdog Millionaire made um, our Sweet Sixteen there. That was kind of shocking to me. So then your final two prediction was what? The Heart Locker and Gladiator. So you got one of those. Yes. Uh, I had Fantastic Mr. Fox and Gladiator. So obviously I got one of the two as well. And then what was your final four pick? It was Gladiator. And so was mine. 
So you're uh, ahead two by by three. I missed three total the entire okay. section. How many did you miss? Looks like I missed five. Okay. Yep. That's about right. So I I am excited. That makes me happy. I am in the lead, which obviously, as Patrick's story just told you, means diddly because it can change the heartbeat. As but you saw from our trivia. What I think it oh, that's another mean dig. <laughs> Not nice. Um We're both, both terrible. I'm just less terrible than you. That's that. true. That is actually very true. So one thing I found really cool was that we both picked Gladiator, and I expected us to both pick Gladiator. And if there's one movie that I was gonna call in this entire competition that our listeners were going to pick one of the four it was this bracket and gladiator and sure enough they did not let us down no they did not (laughs) i love it man it is a it is a nice affirming feeling to know that the listeners chose this because at some point in the near future this was going to be talked about especially after our conversation about troy which got me thinking about gladiator yeah for sure all right man well Quick announcements. Uh, the votes are in from the second week of Director Battle Month. And next week's episode 122 is going to be on Seven Samurai, which is our very first black and white foreign film, I will say, uh, together. So this is where we did our first foreign film recently with Life is Beautiful. And now we're going to go way back in time and cover another one and i i hope that patrick <laughs> can handle this i think he's gonna love the movie everyone i really really do i think once he gets into it and realizes the themes that are going on he is going to enjoy the heck out of it but it is long and it is subtitled and it does have a lot of names that are very hard to remember so patrick's notoriously bad we've already discussed we're gonna try and you know make a little cheat sheet for him and for me too Uh, but we are definitely excited about covering this akira kurosawa film and then of course when you tune in next week for that episode you'll find out how we're doing on our competition and whether or not uh, i maintain my lead lastly we want to plug popcorn theology some friends of ours that are putting out podcasts where they talk about how theology can be gleaned from a movie that you watch not necessarily when you go into it thinking that it's going to be there but finding a good message in that. So here's a word from them about what they do, and we'd encourage you to give them a listen. Have you ever watched a movie or TV show with your friends and noticed all kinds of symbolism, allegory, and Christian themes only to have your friends shrug it off? Well, maybe you need some new friends, but more likely you need popcorn theology. I'm Richard. And I'm David. And we're the hosts of Popcorn Theology, a podcast for movie lovers and theology nerds. Each week, we dive into a different movie, TV show, or other topic and explore them from a biblical worldview. Check us out on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher or at popcorntheology.com. And remember, you are not a mindless consumer. All right. And with that said, we are now moving into our spoilery zone. So if you haven't seen Gladiator, shame on you. Go see it because it's really good and it's more than good. It's great. And then come back and enjoy some conversation with us as we get ready to conversate about this. So, Aaron, if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and give my one word takeaway and then we'll kick it over to you. That's cool. Go for it. All right. So the word that I pulled away from this on this viewing, and there could have been a number of words. In fact, probably next week when I watch it again, because I probably will, uh, it will probably be something different. But this time around, the word that stuck out to me was leadership. 
And I'll, this is inspired by the fact that I'm currently reading a book called Leaders Eat Last. And recently I was promoted into a lead position at work. And so Gladiator came around kind of at a perfect time for me. Watching it um, being high on my favorites list, I was immediately drawn to the approaches that Ridley Scott went to paint these various pictures of leadership through the different, char- the different characters in the, in the movie. And I don't want to go into too many details here because I think it's something that I I want us to kind of go deeper into when we get into the main discussion. But I will say that so much of the film is weighted in the choices each character in a leadership role makes, even if their choices aren't made with leadership in mind. There's a lot of different motives going on in here with these characters. And I think what stood out to me was how unintentional the leadership aspect of of each of these guys really stood out. And I, I was surprised at that. I mean, I guess I noticed it in viewings past, but more, I have no problem admitting that it's probably because of the place I am in my life and what I'm kind of absorbing around me that it really stood out and it really elevated the movie for me because it felt inspirational. It felt like I could, hand this to my team and say, Hey, check out this scene. This is kind of what I'm getting at when I'm, I'm talking to you about this. I, I wouldn't want to necessarily take this to a conference and say, here's how leadership really should work. But at the very least it excited me and it made me more connected to the, to the movie as a whole. That's awesome. Yeah. It, definitely the way that we view films is influenced by our current life circumstances. And we've talked about that frequently, whether we see a movie now when we're a parent and in our thirties versus if we saw it when we were a teenager and the drastically different takeaways that we may come away with. So I love that. And it, and it definitely knowing more of your story, even I know that it fits perfectly. Well, for me, my one word takeaway this time around was plain and simple entertainment. Yes, Maximus. Yes, I am entertained. What a rousing epic this is. And you know, it holds up marvelously almost 20 years later. It, is such an inspiring story about this man that has had everything taken away from him. And I love the fact that he fights on not just literally, but also figuratively uh, for revenge, but also, you know, to see the dying wishes of a leader that he respected realized for the country that he loves. The script stuck out to me big time this viewing. And I realized how many amazing quotes and nuggets of wisdom it contained. I also love that this film is historical, but yet it's fictionalized to make it more dramatic. And that doesn't bother me at all in this movie. All in all, even watching the extended three hour long extended cut, I didn't feel the passing of time. And frankly, I was enthralled from beginning to end during this viewing It is entertaining as a film while also providing us an opportunity to consider what we historically might have been like. Like, what have we been entertained by and why is that? I can definitely point out flaws. Uh, They stuck out to me this time around and were noticeable. But the emotion of this story is what renders those pretty much meaningless to me. I just love it. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. And this is a, it's fun to talk about this in light of a movie like Troy. And I kind of want to begin the conversation by talking about the story as a whole. 
I was reading a little bit of the trivia from IMDb, and I don't know if the trivia was saying it or if it was quoting something else that said this is the first of what might be called the modern epic. It's really what kicked off the the stories that came later, like Troy, Kingdom of Heaven, um, King Arthur, Alexander, and Gods and Kings. And there's a little small trilogy about a ring and some hobbits. I don't know if anybody remembers that. But it was a a lot of stuff that came after this. And I wanted to ask you, do you consider this an epic? And if, I mean, if so, do you consider it a good epic? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely think it's an epic and it's because we have this hero's journey that is spanning a long distance of time and or space. Uh, we have a big transition that is occurring within the life of Maximus going from this point up on high of being a general and even being, you know, gifted to be the essentially the emperor of Rome, the protector of Rome on Caesar's death. That is an crazy, crazy accolade to have achieved and yet to fall and then see your family murdered and be, you know, sold into slavery and have to work your way up through the gladiatorial cycle uh, to get yourself to Rome, to get yourself to be in a position where you can, you know, take your revenge and try and right these wrongs. It's, it's a lot of story. And even in the three hours of the extended cut, I mean, it still happens pretty fast, but we're cutting through periods of time. I mean, these things don't happen as quickly in reality as they did in the movie. You know, it seems like it might be moving faster than it really did. But for, it's still an epic because of that. And you've got these big, big themes that are in play. Uh, the fate of an entire country is at stake politically. How the how Rome is going to recover, how they are going to be led into the future. So absolutely it's an epic and absolutely it's a great epic. And I'm glad that it reinvented or re, not reinvented, but reinvigorated Hollywood tr- taking a chance on making this kind of movies. Would you put it on the same scale as things like Spartacus and things that came before it? Well, I like it better than Spartacus, and I like it better than Ben-Hur. Those I do put it on that scale. I think those are very good. I will say that, yeah, I mean, I I really, I guess I do, man. I'm trying to think. I know what my flaws are, and I'm trying to think if I would consider them major. But when I think of how I rate these movies and how I feel about them, this one is better to me and it's, it's definitely more rewatchable i mean the 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 flow of this film and this is where ridley scott's strength is and I, I tried to squeeze in as much of the extras of this movie as i could tonight before we recorded and that was one of the things that i heard discussed by the producers is when they were making a short list of who to go get for the movie they wanted someone that could carry the emotional weight of this story while also servicing the action and handling any technical difficulties that arose from what they were going to try to do, because when this came out in 2000, you know, it was marvelous and, and spectacular with, a, within regards to effects, which those other movies are as well. And I think the best epics tend to have that. They tend to kind of break the mold or usher in something new. Avatar is a good example uh, of your first 3d kind of epic. And so, yeah, I, I think it absolutely holds up and belongs in that conversation. I do too. And I think when we, when we start thinking about what an epic is, I, I remember us having a, an offline conversation about how we define that because I don't think we ever talked about it on air. 
and and we never really gave it a description, but you sound you're helping me kind of craft what I feel like a definition of that is. I mean, I can go to the internet, but I like trying to be smart and coming up with myself. When you have a hero's journey, which is obviously a central thing, you have the individual journey of the hero with big stuff happening around that individual, whether or not they're connected to it, although that helps when they're connected to it. So Maximus, he's an interesting character because he, as a character, doesn't want to be connected to the bigger story. He doesn't want to be a part of the fate of Rome. And he's really just thrown into it. I love at the beginning when Marcus Aurelius says, I want you to take over and make sure that my vision is carried out where I don't have an opportunity where what I want is to see Rome become a Republic again. And he's like, I just want to go home and see my family. I want to farm. I want to just be this guy. I don't, I didn't want this on me. And yet he is given that by no choice of his own. I mean, he chooses to enact this revenge uh, journey, but in the process of that, he is connected with other people that are connected to Marcus Aurelius. And so he's sort of tied into that bigger narrative. And I I think you're also right in that what really Scott does really well in this is he creates a tight story. Um, This the, the the background of this film is really more about uh, it has its its roots in saying that um, it wasn't complete. I remember reading an article that you sent me indicating that they had about what ninety pages or forty pages, some, some uh, less than less than half of the script was actually finished when they started filming. And when I read that, I was like, "That's interesting because it feels very tight." And maybe that's why it felt tight because it doesn't feel bloated at all. Well, I can speak to some of that because one one of the interviews I was listening to was from some of the screenwriters and they really talked about how this film came to be with regards to its history, how it treated history versus fiction and its screenwriting process. And you're right. They had, I think that he said like one quarter of the normal amount of pages ready to go when they started writing. And so the original story author gave them the idea for this. And that's what they pitched Ridley on. They actually went to his house uh, and they brought a painting. And what I learned from this interview was that Ridley Scott is an artist himself and he likes to paint and has often talked about the fact that when he retires, he just wants to sit out in his garden and make pictures. And so they took this painting, this famous painting of a gladiator and he is standing over a vanquished foe and the emperor and they think it's Nero is leaning over. It's a it's a shot of the Coliseum kind of in the background. And he's got his thumbs down to tell the gladiator to, to make the kill. And he says that while they're pitching Ridley, the, the movie and talking about the story that Ridley's eyes kept going to that picture and he would kind of come back to him and like give him his attention for a second. And then he would drift and go look at the picture. And about halfway through, he just cut him off and he was like, yeah, yeah you're fine. I'm, I'm in, I'll do it. And so like Ridley was kind of wooed by that photo of the historical nature of a gladiator in an arena. And this first draft by the original screenwriter um, eventually got modified as they right before they went into the film. And when they decided that they wanted to add the love story aspect to it, and what they what they decided was they didn't want it to be all about the manly conquering and killing of the gladiator arena. And that's what sets this movie apart. So I think they did a great job. It's that they brought into play 
the religious aspect of the pagan idea of Elysium, which I may not personally agree with, but I think it's depicted wonderfully here as what that actual belief is. And the idea that he's fighting for something more. It's, it's about love. It's not about killing, right? The, the killing happens and it's a, it's a means to an end, but it's really about reuniting with his family in Elysium at the end. Like that's where he's trying to get through this whole journey. And what happened is during those scripts, the dialogue really said was not quite lining up. It wasn't like you said, tight. And even though the original screenwriter's script was, was good, they wanted someone to come in. And so Bill Nicholson was brought in as a third person to take a look at this script while they were on set. And he's the one that fleshed out those changes really created some of the relationship moments we get uh, in particular, the one that I love almost just, I really get emotional at is the one between Caesar and Lucilla earlier in the film when they're talking and he says, you know, I, I just want to be, you know, father and daughter. Um, and, and let's just, you know, she says something about like, that, wouldn't that be something like if we, you know, we can pretend we have to pretend to be that relationship because of what the, their roles are. And so this third screenwriter brought in all of that while they were filming to put this thing together. So yeah, man, the story of how this came to be is, is fascinating. Um, and the other one I wanted to point out with the, the context of this is that with regard to story, one of the biggest criticisms I've heard is it get his, get history wrong, right? That these are actual characters that existed, Commodus, Marcus Aurelius, but you're not necessarily perfectly telling their stories. Ridley had numerous historians and scholars on his set helping to create this story. And one of the quotes that they used was really impactful for me. They said that they wanted to figure out how to reinvent the Roman epic and bring it into the new modern age. And that it's more about the future than it is the past. That they wanted it to look and feel more like what you might think LA would be like in a thousand years. To the extent that Proximo was actually modeled after the idea of him being like a CIA agent. Uh, and he says that you are writing story, not writing history. That was the quote that stuck out to me the most. They talked about how we actually don't know how Roman everyday citizens viewed the arena. What we know is how historians wrote about it, how scholars wrote about it. But because of how history works, <laughs> those with the voice are not necessarily those that are the ones experiencing it. So our interpretation of what the Colosseum and the Gladiator games would be is just that. It's an interpretation. It's a guess. It's a best guess. And so they took that and they wrote a story that made it entertaining and interesting and weren't trying to rewrite history because they would have been guessing at that too. And so I just really had a lot of respect hearing them talk about that. And it totally put me at ease with regards to, I, I don't care at all whether they're accurate or not. Yeah. So a couple of things on that gladiator in light of what you just said, almost forces us to be entertained. <laughs> and I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but that's the truth of what we go see movies for is that motive to be entertained before I, and this is my confession, I knew of a Marcus Aurelius. I did not know of a Commodus. I did not know of a Maximus who did not exist. 
So reading this and knowing that there was actually historical data to pull from, I responded the exact same way you did. I didn't see this as a biopic. I didn't see this as a documentary. I didn't see this as a historical retelling of events that took place like Troy. Troy, I'd probably, I would probably be more critical of because of the fact that it's trying to depict events that actually happened. When it comes to Gladiator and what I think Ridley Scott and company do really well with that modern epic is they put you in the emotional space of a character. You're not just watching action set pieces and battles and gladiator matches. You're not just entertained. You are connected to these, to these people. So there's a bit of irony in that we are entertained, but we're also feeling something more visceral because of these scenes that are actually driving the movie. Whereas the scenes in the arena scenes in these other battlegrounds, they become, like you said, a means to an end. The opening battle sequence against the barbarians set us up. Not, not, who is it? Not the barbarians. Who is it? Yeah, the tribes of Germany. Right. What we see is not a great battle, although it is. It's great choreography. It's really well done. But it's equally about Maximus and his relationship with his men. And what I like about Ridley Scott's action is that it's gritty and it's not overdone when it needs to be overblown. It's done with purpose. It's not just done to be gratuitous. That's kind of what turned me off about Wolfgang Peterson is every shot felt like it was a slasher flick moment. Whereas Ridley Scott, the moments that are like, Oh my gosh, are only accented because we've not seen that in two or three shots. We see in these different fights, stabbing, and cutting of things. And it's only when we get like the head getting chopped off, that's the final thing of the, of the scene. So what I think I like about this from at least a cinematic standpoint is that we get just enough to make us feel and give us that wow factor, but not so much that we're feeling like, Oh, this is just gross for being gross. or this is just bloody for being bloody. It all feels purposeful. And I got through that three hour extended edition feeling like I just watched an hour and a half because everything felt important. Everything felt valuable. Yeah. You could have got, you could have watched more and that's a huge compliment, right? Is that when we watch a three hour movie and we say, man, I would have watched more of that. That's Lord of the Rings level uh, Mm -hmm. storytelling because you want it to be extended because you want to know more and have more detail and more relationship stuff. And then what you got and more fights and more everything that first battle scene really blew my mind this time around it, it, on so many levels. The action was incredible. The imagery, that headless horseman coming back, right? Mm-hmm. Showing you what their answer is and the way that Maximus leads his troops. And frankly, Patrick, I had a hard time thinking through who am I rooting for in this, in this time? You know, the Romans are conquering people. Like this is the Germans homeland. They yeah. live there. So should I be rooting for them or should I be rooting for the Germans? And I think that the film does a fantastic job of not giving us someone to root for because of what you said. It's about Maximus, the person less than, Hey, everybody go Rome. That's not what this movie is about. Yeah. We get a connection early on and we stick with it because Maximus is our narrator. It's always from his perspective. 
he meets up with Proximo later on. He's been captured. And there's an interesting line that Proximo says. He says, I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd and you will win your freedom. So we see these big battles. We see these fights. We see this incredible grittiness that takes place throughout the movie. And it it really kind of raises the question, why are these people, us as an audience, modern day, this crowd in the Coliseum or these other arenas around the 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 area, why are they drawn to watch other people battle? What is it about the battle, whether it's done for purpose or for sport, that is appealing to us as an audience? You know, we had this conversation when we talked about the movie Warrior, uh, the MMA film. Yeah. And I have no doubt that we're going to talk about it more when we discuss Creed and Creed 2 probably later this year or when we discuss Rocky eventually or any movie that's related to a combat sport or a major battle like this. But I don't know the answer. Um, It's fascinating to me and it was fascinating to the filmmakers as well. One of the things I pulled out of those interviews is that this was a question that they sat around the table and talked about constantly is what made culture desire this. What I can tell you is living where we live now in America and the current state of our society, I feel very strongly that this is not something I would be shocked to see. Not quite in this way, of course. I'm not going to make a direct parallel or assumption, but you know, I could see a subset of American citizens who would gladly go to an arena and cheer on gladiator combat between prisoners or convicts of certain kinds. Uh, This is an idea explored in some sci-fi movies as well. And I don't know why we are fascinated by it and why we are drawn to these blood sports. I've asked myself that question many times, like when I'm watching MMA, because what is it that gets me excited? What is it that makes me cheer? It's not necessarily seeing somebody win. It's the harder the hit. It's the more punishing the blow. It's the ooh and the ah when blood comes off somebody's face or when a limb gets broken or whatever the case may be. I I really don't have the answer for why that kind of violence is seemingly inherent in our character to be drawn to that. But clearly gladiator combat is an example of people being just fine with it. Uh, and, I, and I think some of it has to do with how the gladiator narrative is spun to the public, which again is something I would draw a parallel with these days. It's about what the people know. The people don't know that Maximus was a general of the Roman armies who they tried to execute because he knew too much. And then they murdered his family and he was sold to a slave. And now he's in the gladiator. The people don't know that story. They think he's some sort of a convict or some sort of a person that is worthy of death, right? And so they're just watching them and being entertained by their last their last days. Um, I don't know that they would feel the same way if they knew his full story. Is what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I I guess it depends on context when you see something like Gladiator compared to something like Warrior, because that's not the case either. We have in Warrior we have guys that are intentionally going into the arena to compete. So there's competition there, but that's competition between two individuals. That's not something that affects me and you unless we have a bet or something on the line. 
So when I look at that, I think that depending on context, there might be two things. The psychologist in me is kind of been thinking through this. One might be that we like vulnerability. We like seeing the vulnerability of other people. As in the case of sporting events like boxing or MMA, we like seeing people competing to show their strength and also to show the vulnerability of one another. Like what's it going to take to get this person pinned to the ground? What's it going to take to get uh, this person who seems to be completely invincible to be cut in the eye? There's a great moment in Rocky four where he hits Drago in the face and the camera shows Drago holding his face and coming back and it shows a cut over his eye and you hear the announcers going, Drago's cut, Drago's cut. And all of a sudden we're cheering because we're like, oh my gosh, the invincible man has now become, you know, vulnerable. So there's something about that along with, you know, you know, USA versus Russia pride. But I think in, in the world of, of the arena like this, we become, again, this is my psychology opinion. We become the judge and jury. We don't know the background of these people that are, that are fighting. What we know is that they're slaves. So they have no value. Their value is just for our entertainment and they're going to die anyway. So we might as well make some money. We might as well be entertained as a result of their death. It's almost like we give them value because we've already kind of assigned them no value to begin with. And so in this, in this vein, I think we have some kind of ego, some kind of arrogance that says, we're better than you. And therefore we kind of control you, which is great when we see Maximus who we know his backstory comes out and he yells that famous line, are you not entertained? Because this is probably the first time somebody has talked back to the crowd and has basically called them out and says, you don't know me at all. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's really amazing to see that. And I think it elevates that line in that scene uh, just as much. Well, let's get into a few themes. There's definitely a handful, more than a handful, and I just wanted to touch on a few of them as we as we get through this. The first thing is one of my favorite, and that is leadership. And again, as I mentioned in my one-word takeaway, uh, that being it, there are three pairings of leaders that stand out to me, and there's others too in small pockets, and we can talk through those if you want. But the first pairing is near the beginning of the film and we get introduced to Maximus and Marcus Aurelius. So we have this, we have this seasoned soldier who's about to take his, his, his army into battle. And he, you know, he's trying to pump them up. He's got his horse and he's rolling through and he's got his dog behind him. And it's just like, yeah. And then in the background, we see this old, withered man who we find out later is the emperor of Rome, Marcus Aurelius. And he looks more than seasoned. He looks like he's just ready to just lay down and, and meet his final rest. But after the battle, we start opening up and seeing the kind of leaders, the kind of leadership that, that comes with each one of these Maximus's leadership comes as a result of his command of this army. Whereas Marcus Aurelius' leadership comes because he was the son of an emperor. And I wanted to ask you, really, what specific traits stood out to you on each one of these guys as they came into contact with each other and started to um, connect with one another? Well, 
I don't remember if this is one of the many things that I texted you while I was watching the movie, because <laughs> I knew you were out with your wife, so I knew you weren't going to be able to respond, but I just was blowing you up anyway. But one of the things that I thought immediately was watching that opening battle sequence and Romans getting ready. And I said, I'd follow the crap out of Maximus, plain and simple. Like I've been in the military, Patrick, for 15 and a half years. So I know what good leadership looks like in that context. And I know what bad leadership is. What Maximus is, is inspiring. So whether he's right or whether he's wrong really doesn't matter. And one of the Roman soldiers later in the film actually speaks to that. And he says, I follow orders. That's my job. Right. And that leads to a cool moment later on. But in that opening moment, that's the thing that I took away from Maximus is that he knows how to inspire his men. And it largely comes from the fact that he's right there with them. He is on the front line. He is charging into battle. He's not sitting up on high, giving orders. And we, we hear this famous phrase all the time, right? Lead by example. But that's what he does. And then contrasting that with Marcus Aurelius, there's a couple things. Man, he is just, he's so wise. And he's honestly different than any Caesar I've ever seen portrayed on film, I think. To be, to be real with you, usually... They're much more political in nature. They're more scheming and they're more like they're portrayed kind of like the Senate or like Commodus, which it's hilarious that his name is Commodus because it sounds like commode and that's really kind of how he acts. But anywho, I digress. <laughs> Marcus Aurelius is so wise. He tells him what we do in life echoes in eternity, which I think is an incredible piece of advice. And he also says to his son, he has a great moment. Is that one of your, your pairings? It is one of your pairings. So I'll hold on that. <laughs> but yeah, what he is telling Maximus is like, I see you and I see your leadership and I see the inspirational way in which the men follow you. And I see how you carry yourself. You are a man of value. You are a man who will do what's best for Rome and you will be there every single day leading from the front and making sure that it goes how you have planned. And if it yeah. fails, it's going to fail on your back. And my son's not going to do that. So I'm going to follow. I want them to follow you. And that's the kind of leadership. I mean, that's the passing on of a torch. It's a, it's a perfect match. Like this is a great choice and that's what makes it so tragic. So the, I, I agree with you, except I kind of don't. I, and I'm kind of torn there because you're exactly right in all that. And Marcus Aurelius is a wise man, but he's also somewhat, not insecure, but he doubts what his legacy will be. There's a great conversation when he's talking to Maximus and he's about to kind of pitch the idea of, I want you to carry on this legacy. He didn't ask him to be emperor. He just says, I want you to, when I'm gone, you take over leadership and bring the Republic back to Rome. But he, he makes a statement and he says, what kind of Caesar will I be remembered for? Will I be known as... Marcus Aurelius, the wise, the conqueror, the barbarian. I don't remember the specifics, but he's going through these series of character traits where he's lived this life. We don't know if he's ever, he's seen battle, but we don't know if he's ever actually been in battle. I don't think he has. I think he's had guys like Maximus to do his dirty work for him, which may be indicative of the fact that he's sitting back. He's not in the front lines. And the fact is he's probably not meant to because he's an emperor. You know, he's the Caesar. So when you have people that can do your job for you, you know, just like you have 
generals who have men that go into battle on behalf of them. I mean, it makes sense, but it also creates a sense of identity crisis because he doesn't know what kind of legacy he's leaving. And I think it's because there was a dream that was Rome that I think he gave up in favor of the pressure of the Caesar. I think he wanted it to be something else and he failed at that. So when he's telling Maximus that statement, I really think he has kind of a crisis of identity and saying, I don't know what kind of legacy I'm going to be left. And therefore I don't have that confidence. And you contrast that with Maximus who's got this incredible confidence, but not because he wanted to go into battle. He was asked to serve. And as a result, his leadership invoked this sense of people wanting to follow him. Like he has this natural instinct to say, look, I'm going to get the job done. This is my job. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to stab people. I'm going to kill people because that's what I'm supposed to do. I can't sit back and order my men to do this if I can't myself. I agree. I agree. And I think he also, I think another piece of it is shown in what he says to Lucilla when he's talking to her. And he says, if only you had been born a man, what a Caesar you would have made. You would have been strong. But I wonder, would you have been just? And I think what he's telling us right after that is he feels that Maximus would be just. Okay. I didn't actually pick up on that, but that's really interesting that you say that. It also brings to light that she is a strong character. And she proves that to us over the course of the of the film. She's another solid leader, but she can't lead because she's a woman. And... I mean, that's sad, but it's the truth of the time period that we're dealing with. And so instead, we get Commodus, the other sibling of the of the family. And this leads into my, my second comparison, which is Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. Now, I go back to saying that we have Marcus Aurelius sitting on the back of the battle, and he's watching. And we question whether or not he was ever in battle. And there's this really interesting moment where Commodus... And his sister, they're coming to where Marcus Aurelius is. He runs up and he gives his dad a hug and a kiss. And he says, father, I'm here. Have I missed the battle? And he goes, you've missed the war. That says so much about who Commodus is. You've been sitting on the sidelines. You've been doing whatever, I guess, a Caesar in waiting will do. You haven't been a part of this. And you see it as just an opportunity to see me and to check in. And so we look at that and we immediately see a disconnect in terms of power and leadership. We see weakness and it it comes to real light later when we start looking at Commodus in relation to, to Maximus. Yeah. He's a fair weather fan, man. He shows up when the team starts winning, Yeah, Uh, you know, and the championship is at hand and, you know, he's not going to travel with the team and go through the road games and all the grime and the muck of the 162 game season. But game seven in the World Series. Hey, I've been a Yankee fan my whole life. What are you talking about? Mantle. I was there. I was rooting all the time. That's Commodus. Like he's that guy. Oh, so now that I'm thinking of him as a Yankee fan, I hate him even more. Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, there's that line that I was going to talk about earlier between Marcus and Commodus, where he says, your fault as a son is my failure as a father. And that was so powerful. Like, honest to God, if I had like one sentence takeaway or one sentence connecting point, that might be it. Because not only did that sting me 
as a dad and make me go, wow, like there's a lot of ownership that I don't necessarily push off, but that I don't necessarily either have in the forefront of my mind at all times for what I'm responsible for when it comes to leading and bringing up my children. Obviously, I don't think I'm raising Commoduses, but for him to take that responsibility in that moment, like that's powerful, right? And that whole scene just, that struck me again as great leadership uh, from him. And it, and it says something. It says that he's, he's made problem. He's made problem. He's, I can't talk. He has faults. He has made mistakes as a father, probably due to the fact that he's being Caesar and he's putting his focus more on Rome than he is on his son. So he's not perfect either, but the fact that he can recognize it and express it and basically say, I'm sorry for it, I think is a big strength in a leader. I think it's a great strength in a leader, but there's a part of me that feels like the way he said it was really a backhanded way of saying, Commodus, you're awful. And he basically, before that, he says, you will not be Caesar. I'm giving it to Maximus. I'm giving Maximus this responsibility. And I think one of the most visceral moments, it wasn't my connecting point, but it was in the top three, was when after that line, I think it's, I think Marcus says, come here and embrace me. And he hugs him and you, you see the look on Joaquin Phoenix's face as Commodus and he's crying and you, you're like, Oh my gosh, they're embracing. It's, it's like the moment in the force awakens right before, you know, that moment. And we, we see this embrace and then we start seeing what's actually happening. Like he is killing his father, but he's crying. And so it's like, we're getting this duality of who Commodus is at this point. He says, I am so angry with you. I am so frustrated and yet I am so upset that I have to do this. Like there is remorse and jealousy and anger all wrapped up into this, just this murderous embrace and then cut to the next scene. And we have, we have um, Maximus being, aw- being awakened saying, Hey, something's happened. It, I mean, my, I felt like my heart stopped in that moment because that's the moment that I remember the first time I watched, I was like, this guy just killed his dad. Oh my gosh. And it's the first time that I realized that Commodus is not one you want to mess with. He might be a whining baby, but he's a whining baby who's a Caesar. Yep. And you don't, you don't mess with that. And he's smart. Like, he, he is. He, he, yeah. he, yep. And so his leadership, I think, takes on a new role throughout the rest of the film with Marcus Aurelius being gone. And then it sets up this great contrast between him and Maximus leading to their big showdown near the end of the film. And the thing that stood out to me on this is that when we see Commodus, as he goes through the character arc that he does, he is mischievous and he is, he's strategic. I didn't pick this up and maybe it was in the extended edition this time that I, and why I didn't, I didn't realize that he was rationing out the grain reserves, but he, we don't just find that out. What we find out later is that he actually tells the Senate. He says, I told them and they weren't surprised. I know what's going on. And it further elevated that scene with him and his sister, where he's talking to her son, Lucius. And he starts talking about the busy little bee 
And it just elevated that scene a lot more for me. And that, that, that made me fearful. Yeah, for sure, man. I actually, that stuck out to me as well this time around. So maybe it was because we were watching the extended edition. That might be one of the added scenes where he's talking or we learn about the grain and how, you know, she points out like the Roman people are sitting here cheering him spending this money and they're going to be starving two years from now because of what's going on. And his leadership is all around his ego, his fragile, fragile ego. He has that wonderfully acted but really soap opera dramatic scene where he says if they lie to me they don't respect me if they don't respect me how can they ever love me that says everything you need to know about Commodus like his idea of love is respect and his idea of respect is obedience essentially so to him pure and unquestioned obedience is how you love. There is no talking back. There is no room for questioning. There is no room for another opinion. And if he doesn't get his way, then in his mind, in his warped sense of character and being, he is not loved, which elicits the kind of crazed, you know, reactions and responses that he has. I mean, he, he's a, he's a walking nightmare, man. Uh, he, he is dangerous. Mm-hmm. He really is. And there's a lot about that motive and a lot that creates that danger that we find out as the story progresses. And you contrast that with Maximus, who is a soldier, but he has this vulnerability that we get from the very first shot of the film. It's his hand over the wheat. Mm -hmm. And we don't know what that is. But we come to find out later when he's describing home, which, by the way, when he describes the smells of the the house and the the different herbs and other things that 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 make up his farm, he's actually describing Russell Crowe is describing his farm in Australia. He went ad lib on that to make it a little bit more personal. Um, and when I see that or when I hear that, it immediately kind of rounds him out as a character because we're not just looking at the story of a soldier. We're following the story of a husband and the story of a father. And anyone can connect with that because we are all sons and daughters of someone where we, some of us are fathers and mothers of others. Some of us are husbands or wives of, of, of people. So we have that connection there. We're not all soldiers. And if we are soldiers, then, well, great. Now we've connected on a multitude of levels if we have all that. And I like the fact that we get Maximus as a human being, Maximus as a vulnerable character. And through that vulnerability, in spite of that vulnerability, however you want to see it, we see the leadership come to the forefront and stay at the forefront of the film. Yeah, we do. There's another great scene about Commodus's leadership style that stuck out to me in this viewing. And it's that moment where he has caught some of the Roman soldiers who didn't tell him that Maximus got away and he has them lined up to die. And there's that soldier captain that I talked about earlier where he says, I follow orders. Uh, and Commodus, again, with the ego, he has the firing squad raise their bows and draw them. And then he walks in front of them. And he stands there. And I love this shot because Ridley intentionally puts the camera 
on a quivering hand, right? No pun intended with quiver, but it's a shaking hand because they're just holding and holding their drawstrings back, right? But they, they can't accidentally let them fly because Commodus is standing right there and he beckons the captain over. And there's so much tension in this scene because you wonder, are they, is he going to like have them shoot this guy in the back? What's going to happen? And he's just questioning him intensely, like questioning him. And, and oh my gosh, man, like, and then he walks back and he stands between the two men that are about to be killed when he finally makes the other guy give the order. And that speaks to what you were talking about earlier. He's not on the front lines, essentially like he's not, he's giving the order. He's not the one pulling the trigger. He's not the one firing the arrow, but he stands there and relishes their death. And, and it, it, it is one of the most memorable scenes to me in the movie, because there's just this little bit of blood that spurts onto his cheek and it's a close up of his face and it's that crazed Joaquin performance where like he looks like a maniac and you just, you know, these two men have just died like kind of to his left and his right with his hands on their shoulder. It's, it is his style of leadership and shows like that's warped leadership. <laughs> like, that's not good. That's not no, good. And, not. And, he, and he also thinks that he's also got a messed up view of mercy. Like there, he, forcing his sister into an incestuous relationship. And he screamed, am I not merciful because I'm not killing you? I'm just making you like love me, even though you're my sister, I'm going to force you to be in a relationship with me. But because I didn't kill you, I'm merciful. Yeah. Um, It's totally jacked. Well, the scene that you're referring to with the execution was yet another extended scene was not in the theatrical cut. Something else I found interesting about that, in addition to what you said, is the fact that he didn't even order the firing. He had Quintus do it. I think it's his name, Quintus. I'm going to go ahead and say that. It was. He told Quintus to do it. So he's not even carrying out the order himself. Not only is he not firing the arrow, but he's not even saying, you know, fire. He's telling Quintus to do it. And there's this weird kind of duality of him being both strong and weak in that moment. Because we'd think maybe in part a real leader would either fire the arrow or would take the order. And yet he's handing it off to somebody else so he doesn't have to. But at the same time, he is spotlighting how powerful he actually is. And so there's just this weird, weird crazy leadership happening here. It's a great comparison actually to the game of Thrones um, in the first season, Sean Bean's character, the King of the North Stark, Ned Stark. He, the way that that works in that world is they call it carrying out the King's justice. And it's very specific. The King goes out with his kingly strong named sword and takes your head off. Like nobody else does it. There's no ax man. There's no hanging you in the square. He goes out, he talks to you one-on-one and then he delivers his justice to you personally, one-on-one. And it makes you wonder, like, what kind of world would be different? How Rome would be different if it was under leadership like that? I mean, it, it makes you wonder how America would be different, too, I guess. <laughs> I don't even know if I want to think about that kind of world we live in. <laughs> well, let's move on to revenge. That's a big, big driving force in in Gladiator. And from a storytelling standpoint, we're... We're on this revenge road with Maximus as an audience. Um, you know, we're with him. We're, we're following him through each of these steps. Were you satisfied with the way things ended with his character arc and this revenge story? Um, 
if are we kind of tying this in with like the whole ending of the movie and death scene? Because I don't know that I can do that without talking about no, it as a whole. No, well, so from a from an audience perspective, maybe morally speaking, let's talk about the character himself, not necessarily about how great or how bad the ending was. But okay, do you, you did you agree or do you do you feel like there was a, a justifiable ending to the way that that he ended communist's life and how his life ended i think that his revenge would have come very i would have had a problem with it okay had it not included his desire to see rome changed and that's why i was trying to get around this without talking about like necessarily the end, but I'm going to have to like the, de- the end of the film is what makes the revenge plot work for me because okay. it's not just about killing Commodus. It is about killing Commodus, but it's not just for me. It's for Rome. And so in his last moments and in his last words, it's what makes that almost a CP connecting point for me is that, he specifically calls out the fact that Lucius is safe and that someone else is not going to have to endure the kind of life or the kind of misery that his son was put through. And he gives the lasting order that the dream that was Rome be carried out. So like, that's kind of his last words. That's what he's, he's all about. It's not about, yeah, I killed Commodus. His last words are about making Rome a better place for those that are carrying on after him going forward. So that, in a sense, the revenge is like not even on my mind, frankly. Okay. Well, I have a hard time with it because I agree with that. I I think that by the end of the movie, vengeance becomes secondary or at least equal to the bigger world that is – on the verge of changing on the verge of getting better because that's equally a theme in this movie. The theme of what Rome is versus what it could become. And I look at that and I love the ending. Like, I think it's a, I think it's appropriate. I think that's the word that I would probably use to describe it. But I also am thinking about, the actions of remind me his sister's name again. Comment is his sister, Lucilla. Lucilla, she's the Caesar that could have been, but would she be just? Now, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be very honest and say I think that she would definitely carry out or find a means to carry out the dream of Marcus Aurelius because of how deeply she cared for her father, how she believed in that dream. But I also wonder if the death of of this guy, the death of Maximus, could it have been better if he had lived, if he had helped carry out? Because he was a man. I mean, who is next in line to carry out this dream? I mean, would she would she say, "All right, you're now a republic, handed over to the Senate"? I don't know the politics behind that, and so maybe I'm getting too deep into the weeds there. But he got what he wanted. He had his vengeance. He carried out the message, but the world lost a great man. I mean, this guy was someone that the, that Rome would follow. Even if he wasn't Caesar, he would at least be 
probably a pure believing leader that they could follow and they would believe in the vision that he's casting from, from Marcus Aurelius, even if it was his dream. So I kind of have a problem with that. I'm like, you would have made, you would have, instead of having a legacy of, of someone to be inspired by, you could have lived out that legacy and have left a bigger mark. Potentially. Yeah. I think from a story perspective, I side with the writers though. And one thing I learned from them when they were discussing it was that gladiator has a huge following amongst women. And that's different than many sword and sandal epics. And the reason for that is that men are going to love this movie no matter what, because they want to see the violence and the strong manly leadership character. But what sets it apart is the love story. And I mentioned this earlier. It's not about getting revenge. The revenge is on the journey, but the the ultimate goal is the love story, the reunification with his family in Elysium. That's his goal. That's why he dies with a smile on his face because he's going to be with them. And so it would not be honest and true to the love story that is he and his family and getting back to them. If we ended with him becoming Caesar. Now, do I agree with you from the perspective of what's best from Rome and for Rome's future as leadership? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, a hundred percent. There's no question. You know, I, I love the way that people follow him throughout the movie, man. There's that great scene when, um, I don't know if it's Quintus or Gaius. I can't remember his name, but he, he comes back to him and he says, tell the men their general lives. Like they're, they're waiting out in a camp hoping to hear what to do next. But when they find out he's alive, man, they come and the slaves in that scene, they don't hesitate. He tells them, he says, you know, this is what I'm going to do. You're not, I'm not asking you to come with me. And they're like, uh, we're coming with you, right? Like we will put our our lives on the line for you. Um, because what you are trying to do is right. And this is the way that Rome needs to go forward. And so, yeah, I have no doubt that you're absolutely correct. And he would for sure have taken them a better path. Yeah. I think I look at that. I look at his death and I think it's meaningful, which is something that you don't often say about a vengeful death. When you die trying to right a wrong, because your life is now sacrificed because of that. Although you can probably make the case that it was, but I think I agree with you that it definitely amplifies the bigger purpose that maybe his purpose was to die. I mean, he's a soldier in battle and once his family is slain, what motive does he have to live? What I do really like about gladiator is how they hint at his relationship with Lucia, Lucilla, and they don't overdo it. They don't, they don't extend that because it was never about their relationship. Would have really brought the movie down for me. It would have had they had they become a love story like there's obviously emotion between them and it's understandable and believable because of the circumstances and the relationship that they have had in the past. But it never moves past an understanding of he loves his wife and his son and that that is his goal is to get back to them and her her recognition and and acknowledgement of that and not pushing him to do more says a lot about her character as well. It really does. By the way, just real quick. Uh, before we keep going on it, the revenge thing, it, the revenge aspect of this film existing though, 
gives us one of the best scenes in the entire film. And it was, again, almost my connecting point, one of those like in contention. It's that moment when he unites the gladiators and he tells them, he started being their general. He's like, we're not going to win this. If we're scattered, we're going to fight together. And the ones that do live and they defeat all of the soldiers. And that's when Commodus learns that Maximus is alive. And I just, I wrote down, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, because like, that's the tension that you're feeling. But this is where we get the phenomenal line, right? That, that what's in a name. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. So I don't want to lose that. Uh, for that. From that perspective, that is like highly intense, and that captures everything about the mission that he's on at that moment. And I love that it transitions somewhat before we get to the end. It really does. And that's a great line because it says everything about who he is. Like this is not a guy who's in court giving his full name to please the court. This is a guy who's saying, this is my past. This is my present. And this is my future. This is who people know me as. Names are powerful things, and I, I think we always gravitate towards that when we find the theme of a name, of, of naming, you know, your name. And uh, I think Coco had some of that, too. It's just, it's identity. It's connecting yourself to something or someone or a history or a family because you take pride in knowing where you come from. You take pride of knowing where you are, and you take pride in knowing where you're going to be. You know, along the lines of those names, I thought this was a fun little fact that stuck out to me is right before he says that Commodus is talking to him and he's talking about Lucius who's with him. And he says, he insists you're Hector reborn. And I was like, (laughs) Troy reference. But I thought, you know, isn't that the point of the film was being made to reference the kind of epic that Greek mythology gave us. And so having that line in there, um, was really cool. And I just thought it was a good nod and reminded me of the leadership conversation that we had about Hector and his leadership and, and how comparatively in the same boat it is as Maximus. Yeah. And so the character names and naming itself doesn't just, you know, it, it doesn't just limit itself to the actual people. Rome itself is being questioned by its identity. There, there are several lines in the movie where people are trying to define what Rome is. It's asked, you know, there was a dream that was Rome. What is that dream? Uh, Later on, you have a couple of the politicians right before we get the game started. And uh, one of the guys says, Rome is the mob. (laughs) And it really is. And I think what, what we're trying to get to and what Maximus is trying to get to is not that Rome isn't the mob, that Rome is the people. And that's the purity. I think that's in, in the world of business that I live in, we have what's called an ideal state and a future state. So the ideal state is what you strive to get towards, but the future state is what is attainable that's better than what the current state is. And I think the ideal state is that Rome is a perfect republic being led by the Senate and it's being just and it's being given the grain that it needs to and it has clean water and all that And the reality of the current state is Rome is the mob. And I think the future state that we get at the end of the film is the fact that Rome could be great again, but it starts with being able to hand off that power. It starts with ending Commodus's life. Yeah, no, it does. There's, there's also a great line where he says, um, 
Maximus, uh, Marcus Aurelius is talking to Maximus in the beginning. He says, Emperor or Senate, and maybe it's, it might have been Commodus talking to him. And Maximus responds, Well, a soldier has the benefit of being able to look an enemy in his eye. Saying, <laughs> saying that neither one, neither one of them can understand what it is to fight. And the thing that stuck out to me the most about Rome's future, Patrick, honestly, I kid you not, it came in the opening crawl text. One of the, the lines in that text declares, only one final stronghold lies between victory and the promise of peace. That's the way it was written. Hmm. And in that, I thought to myself, you know, that's the problem. <laughs> Rome believes that it's not at peace because it hasn't conquered this state in Germany, which is nowhere close to Rome. So they're moving forward and evaluating their future from the wrong perspective. You know what I mean? Like it's not even an accurate place that they're coming from because they, they're acting as if they're, they're approaching this from a place of believing that they're not at peace. When in reality they would be at peace just fine if they stopped conquering lands. And I think it's a matter of control. Troy hits at that a little bit where if you're not conquering everything, if you don't have control over everything, there's a false sense of a peace that, that comes from that. And I like that it doesn't linger on it and that the movie isn't about who they conquer. They're at the tail end of something. And the movie amplifies the fact that they've done what they've done and there's still not peace because there's still division within Rome. It's not just between Rome and other countries. You can conquer every country in the world. And if you don't have unification in, on the homeland, you're just as weak as every other country that you've conquered. And it can't just be by the sword. It has to be by the, by the quill or, or whatever you want to mm-hmm. symbolically refer to a democracy or a republic or whatever. There's, there's chaos even after the, the answer is given. We've conquered everybody, but there's still division and we need to solve that. Well, one last thing before we get into our connecting points, I wanted to talk about this theme of death and, um, you know, Maximus dies at the end again, spoilery, you know, whatever. And the, the movie seems to allude to his fearlessness. He has no problem going into battle. He has no problem going into the gladiator arena at one point by himself, which is crazy in and of itself. But could this also be an interpretation of a lack of wanting to live because we have the revenge story. We have his wanting to be with, well, forget about the revenge. Think about he wants to be with his wife and son. Revenge aside. Do you think that his motive after getting captured is equally as much about dying at some point to be unified with his family as it is about getting to communist? Like if he didn't, if he weren't able to murder Commodus, do you think he would have felt satisfied in dying just to be with his? Um, I do, because I think that there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of this movie. When everyone does unite in his name, essentially, to help him in his cause, I feel like that's the satisfaction he needs. Now, yes, he's been sold out. He gets captured. And this is where those different leadership styles come into play because, again, it's Commodus' ego that does the classic villain mistake. He can't just let him die. Should have killed him right there in the circle Mm -hmm. under the tree. Should have killed him right there. Some random guard should have gotten the quote-unquote death blow 
on Maximus. Should have been over. And this would have ended and Commodus could have moved on. But he couldn't do that because he needed, he was prideful, right? So he has to go to him and he has to say, no, no, I want to best you in the arena. I have to be the best at everything. And that's the reason that he dies. And what I love about this is that what you just brought up for that reason, Maximus is given the opportunity and so he takes it and he he makes the best of it. But I think that he absolutely would have been content in a sense that if he didn't get to that point, because he did everything he could do to get there. Like he gave his all, you know what I mean? Like there are things that are not under his control. He doesn't necessarily control who he gets purchased by and whether he, him getting to Rome was an accident. It wasn't something he created himself. It was because he happened to get picked up by Proximo, the right guy, the right time. So he makes the best of his situations. I feel like, uh, and I think for that reason, you know, ultimately it wouldn't matter because he would have been where he wanted to be all along. Right. And I think in that moment, what we see is that we have a, a dual motive and one supersedes the other. His connection with his family supersedes his vengeance on Commodus. And I think that's a plus one. And then bringing Rome into a potential peace or a new era of of politics and balance and all that i think is even like a plus one over that so his death i think the more i'm thinking about it his death accomplishes more equally as much for him as it does for the people around him now there's a great line at the very end and i think it's a nice little contrast and juba his uh his friend along the way who fixes his uh his arm uh with the maggots and the sand or whatever He's there's this wonderful moment at the very end. It's the very last shot, and he's burying the statues of his wife and and, and son. And he says, "Now we are free." And of course, that is very literal. You know, the slaves are free, but I think there's a sense of now we are free to make decisions, and now we are free to start our lives and and move into this new era with the sense of uh, accomplishment. So there there might be some weight there. But this is great. And this is probably my favorite line in the movie. He says, I will see you again, but not yet. And those three words right there, and he repeats them. Those three words tell me so much about how Jubal wants to live. His life matters and the life that he lives, maybe as a result of Maximus's death and being inspired by that and being connected with him along this journey. He says, look, I've got more to live for maybe because of you, because of your legacy. And I think that's pretty fantastic that, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And I think that echo bounces back into life and it echoes into the lives of other people. And I think Juba is a great example of that. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, he essentially is more of a composite than I realized to be frank this time around. He's not in it as much as I remembered. Like there's not as much of a relationship between the two that I thought there was, but this nails him being that composite character of he's representing an entire world of people. He's representing all of the slaves and all of the gladiators and all of the people that have been oppressed by Rome uh, and made to fight to the death for entertainment and such. So yeah, he's showing us how they all probably pay respects, even though they may not know Maximus or know the story to the detail that Juba does. But this is where this is what they all feel you know, even if they're not acting it out in the same manner. So yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And of course the music, 
which we haven't even talked about at all, but like the now we are free track that starts playing. Yeah. That's so famous and so good um, during this moment. Oh, it's so awesome. And the whole soundtrack just right before we moved to connecting point, by the way, we both were talking about this quite a bit during the uh, time we were watching the film this time around. I pointed out one of the themes in this sounds a lot like the Armageddon suite. And I urge you listeners to go listen to the Armageddon suite and listen to the gladiator soundtrack. And you will know what I'm talking about. And then Patrick, you picked out that another one of the theme compositions is incredibly reminiscent of what would become the pirates of the Caribbean theme a couple of years later, which I later realized his collaboration. I don't remember the man's name. It's Klaus Belfart or Belfart. Klaus Klaus Bedelt. Oh, thank you. Klaus Bedelt. Uh, They actually come, Come uh, work together on Pirates of the Caribbean too, so it's very understandable that that fit carried over. Um, no, it, yeah, it's it's a blatant, it's a blatant <laughs> borrow. I'm no, trying to be like nice, but yeah, it's oh, pretty no. darn obvious. Hans Zimmer said, "Here, let's use this. This is good because it's a solid theme in, in not the theme of Gladiator, but it's a solid theme that basically makes up the the pirates. It's the pirates theme. Dum bum da dum bum da dum bum da dum. And the first time I'd heard that after seeing pirates, I was like, oh my gosh, they totally stole this. And then I realized, no, Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack for this and co composed pirates, so he stole from himself, and that's okay. That's fair. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> All right. Well, it's connecting point time. Aaron, why don't you get us started? All right. Well, this one surprised me, Patrick. I was not expecting this to be my connecting point. I had a real oh my gosh moment when this happened. And then I thought, oh yeah, but the death scene's coming, the death scene's coming, the death scene's coming. And it came down to, you know, the death scene was close for me. That that moment where he unites everybody and gives the the name uh speech is very close to me. But ultimately, what I found to be my connecting point, and I love it when this happens, when it's not something we expect, it's Maximus escaping his execution. So the ending of the film is definitely powerful. That was my easy pick, but I can't pretend that I don't get more excited for this moment. It's the moment when I become all in on the ride that I think Gladiator is setting up for us to go on. It's when Maximus grabs that sword that's coming down over his back, and then he goes crazy. Now, first of all, the fact that he grabs this sword, Patrick, with his bare hands, and then start swinging it and hitting people with the scabbard. I mean, my jaw is dropping open during this sequence. And I've heard people can criticize the acting in this film. I just don't get that. I really enjoy the acting. Crow is selling everything. He is giving it his all in this moment. He is so confident here as Maximus. First, he asks for that honorable death, and then he just starts destroying all of the soldiers showing us how much of an individual badass he is. And frankly, this is what sets it up and allows me to buy the idea that he could even become the gladiatorial champion that he does down the road. This is the scene that shows us his flair and his ability both in one shot. Plus the dialogue is is super rich and memorable. He says, the frost, sometimes it makes the blade stick. And that guy's just trying to get his sword out. You're like, oh no, oh no, he's going to get it. And then boom, you know, cuts the guy right in the head. And then he turns and there's this shot by Ridley where he's pulling the sword back and he is glaring at the screen. And you're just like, dude, I hope there's nobody left because you're all, you're all toast. Like, I don't care if there's a hundred guys coming at him right now. 
You know what I mean? Like that is one of those moments where he would take out anybody. And he throws the sword at one point. And after all that, he waits patiently and he lines himself up and then he takes out that Praetorian that comes at him on the horse. And it's just epic, man, in every way. This has my blood pumping more than any scene in the film, more than any moment in the arena uh, and ever. And so I really thought this was it. Like this is the the point in the film where I'm like, I get it. And you are the gladiator for me. Well, and it definitely speaks back to your one more takeaway of entertainment because it's probably the most, I don't know if it's the most energetic but I think was there even music in that in that scene? I don't think there was. Like I think it was pure just foley and choreography, which I think speaks to the grittiness and the groundedness of Ridley Scott's fight sequences. They feel close up. We're not getting these big long shots, and uh, and it's it's a great great scene. And I I definitely love that line. The frost sometimes it makes the blade stick. <laughs> just know he's just about to go down you almost have some like feeling of regret for that guy you're like or sympathy you're just like oh no like i'm sorry i'm sorry yeah. you're not even going to get a chance to defend yourself and you're, yeah, you're I'm... <laughs> so good yeah it really is um my scene my connecting point was the solo gladiator battle that maximus uh is in it's hands down the moment for me that that I gravitated towards. And yes, it ends with the famous line, are you not entertained? And by the way, let me just say what a great exclamation point on that line is when he spits. I just think that's fantastic. I hope that was ad-lib because that's just great. He just spits and like says so much about his attitude towards this whole thing. But it has some of the most exciting, if you could call them that, deaths that I've seen in, in movies like this. In fact, I don't know if I'd seen Gladiator beforehand, but I remember that USA or AMC, they were doing the 25 best deaths in the movie deaths in the last century. I don't remember. This was probably, this is obviously back in like 2000, 2003. And that was one of them. And I was like, oh my gosh, I think I have to see that. So yes, I think it was before I actually saw the movie. But those moments in, in that, in that fight are only strengthened by the minute, minute and a half leading up to him actually entering the arena. It starts with a pan down to him from the back, sharpening his sword with this crowd chanting, Spaniard, Spaniard, Spaniard. And then we see him from the front and he's, he's looking at, at Juba just grinning a little bit. Like he's got that slight grin. And then Proximo comes up to him from behind the, the, the gate there. And he says, don't just hack them to pieces. Remember, you're an entertainer. So already we know it's going to happen. He's going to win. So it's not really about us saying, oh my gosh, is he going to die? No, he's not. It's not a matter of will he win? It's how is he going to defeat these people? And we also know that from that moment that he's going to be the only one fighting because nobody else is getting ready. Everybody's just sitting on these two aisles. And so it's going to be a slaughter. And then my favorite part comes up. It's that moment where he walks down the aisle of the cage and his fellow gladiators randomly just start saying Spaniard while raising their swords, just one at a time here and there. This is the moment that I think signifies why I latch on to this movie without even wanting to or even needing to. Maximus's leadership just it's coming through. 
Like he didn't ask them to follow him. He didn't ask them to do what they're doing. It's what he's done up to that point has caused them to back him in whatever way they can in this world of slavery. He's now respected and honored among those who would be considered throwaway pieces of entertainment. It's this scene complete with his victory and that great double sword head decapitation. Oh my gosh. Wow. That I think earns him the right to be their, their leader. And he does the same thing in that opening sequence against the barbarians that earning his place as a leader among these men comes naturally. It comes as a result of saying, I'm being asked to do this and I just, I'm doing what I know how to do. And it's that moment that pays off later when they're in that battle of Carthage reenactment. And it's what you alluded to earlier that he tells them that they're going to survive if they work together. And it's so inspiring, but it only comes as a result of that. I think that one moment where he not only is prepping, like he's ready to go to go to battle, but he takes down what five guys on his own. So the exclamation point is I'm a leader and I'm going to prove it to you. And just the moment that I think says, this is what gladiator is. Mm-hmm. It's not raw, gritty battles and fights and blood. It's leadership. And it's that kind of thing that inspires us. Awesome. Yeah. I love it, man. So good. I don't, I don't, I don't remember the barbarians winning the battle of Carthage. <laughs> I love that line. And you're like, Oh, it's <laughs> Yes, sir. I, I don't know. And that guy's voice is just. I know because you know he's going to die. Like you know yeah. he's done after this. Just, over. Like he's toast. Over. He's done. Yeah, yeah. Put him the thumbs down. <laughs> you know, my only regret oh, before I say this, I, the only one of the things I don't buy about this is like the fact that he's considered a Spaniard. We have an Australian actor who's playing a Roman, and yet we're supposed to buy the hero. Everybody just believes he's a Spaniard. Come on. Well, I thought Spaniard was just somebody who wasn't, who's from out of town. I thought they just called everybody a Spaniard. Okay. So if if we want to do that, I'll buy that. (laughs) That's my theory is that, oh, he's from out of town. Let's just call him a Spaniard. (laughs) Well, one of my only regrets with this film, Patrick, is that it didn't come out about maybe 10 years earlier, because if it did come out when you and I were in our teens, I think we would have been running around with swords, uh, playing Maximus and the barbarians and Commodus uh, out in the yard. Quite a bit. Here's what would have happened. I would have, the moment that I saw your dad, anytime we were hanging out at your house, I would have held my arms out and said, are you not entertained? And then he probably would have come at me with a sword or something like that. He probably would have. (laughs) That would have been great. Yeah. (laughs) Well, man, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad we got to do this. And um, we'd love for you to continue the conversation with us. Uh, If you want to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch. S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Um, if you've got comments about this episode or anything else that we've done, just feel free to tag me or at me, and I'll be glad to uh, to start conversation and uh, do some, some comments here and there. If you like what you're hearing, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us, drop us a review. Let us know how we're doing. And I uh, wanted to remind you that we have our belated Donor pick for July happening, uh, coming out later this week. We're covering the uh, Tom Cruise-led Edge of Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat, uh, insert new title here, whatever they're calling it this year. I guess they they change it up. And then we're following that up with some bonus content on our top five Tom Cruise performances. So be sure to listen.
I decided mine today, and it was not easy. So we'll see if it's still the same come recording night. Uh, well, listeners, three movie, so that way you'll keep your picks intact. Dude, there's so many, so many I, like to choose from. It was tough. Um, listeners, if you'd like to connect with me online, you can do so through social media. Typically, Twitter is a great place at Aaron. Well, no, not at Aaron L. White at Feeling Film Aaron, and at Feeling Film. Uh, you can also connect with me in our Facebook group, which we plug all the time. You can find links to that in the show notes and on the website and just in general by searching for it in Facebook. But come do that. Be a part of the conversation and help us pick the remaining movies in the director movie battle month because we are excited about that. It is a great time. And after Seven Samurai, there's still two more to go. And you could help us choose what they're going to be. Uh, with that being said, Patrick, before we leave, this is a five for me. No question about it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. Is it going in the trophy room? It's absolutely going in the trophy room. All right. Yeah. It's a dual yeah. Totally. I have to give it a six if I could. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. So new entry in the trophy room, and we will leave you with that. Until next time, stay positive. And keep feeling film. Mm-hmm.